Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we will continue our reflections into these special topics. It is Special Topic Thursday, and topics that are, again, tied to your questions, that are tailored to your questions. And I thought, it being Holy Week, it would be good to talk about the Eucharist, and not just going through John 6 like we have in the past. We'll speak to that briefly. But take the Eucharist and put it into the context of Passover. Your specific questions of what are the biblical foundations to the Eucharist and what is the teaching of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist are probably best understood in their original setting. And that setting, my friends, is what? But the Feast of Passover. Again, something that we are well served to talk about on Holy Thursday. So with that, something we should speak to off the top is how the faithful Jew interpreted their liturgy. The Israelites saw the liturgy as their catechism, huh? and still do, right? How all the inherent truths of Judaism are contained within the celebration of their feast days. Essentially, my friends, we could say that what the catechism is for Catholics the liturgy was and is for Judaism. It was the great Rabbi Hirsch from the 1800s who, when asked, why don't you have a catechism, responded, our calendar is our catechism. We have to remember that the liturgical feast days in the Old Testament were tied to what? The wheat harvest, the harvest of barley and grain, and the fall feast days to the grape and olive harvest. For what? Wine and oil. Incidentally, the Hebrew word for feast best translates as the appointed time. So these feast days were celebrated at their appointed time according to God's plan as revealed in the rhythm of seasons. So the Israelite catechism was inscribed into creation itself, where God inscribed timeless truths in the agricultural seasons, that is, days, weeks, and months bring to life the seasonal harvest, those same agricultural seasons became heralds of covenant truth, heralds of belonging to God. And we could add here probably that in a more than similar way, our own Catholic liturgical calendar is a catechism not written on pages, but written in what? Days, weeks, and months where timeless truths are carved into the, into the time signature of the liturgical season. Now, as it relates to Passover, Passover was the first and corporate feast of the wheat harvest. What Advent means to our liturgical calendar is what Passover means to the Jewish calendar. Now, the rabbis distinguished between two Passovers, the Passover of Egypt and the Passover of the generations. So if we are going to understand the Passover of the generations, then we must first understand the Passover of Egypt, because the Passover of the generations was the rememorializing of the Passover of Egypt. So what is 
the Passover of Egypt. I know most of us know what this is all about, right? The Israelite departure from the bondage of slavery under the yoke of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And are we not to understand this as more than just another geographical relocation of refugees, but an immigration into the promised land where the future of the Israelite nation would forever be tied to how it worshiped. In the spirit of the liturgy, Benedict XVI reminded us that Israel's venture into the unknown Sinai was to be at what but the service of God, that mere national autonomy and possession of a land would have reduced Israel to just the status quo like every other nation, and how in this vein of thinking, there really would not have been anything distinct about the nation of Israel being the chosen people. So for this reason, the epic that is the great exodus is always to be interpreted in light of the call to worship. Recall that the Hebrew word for worship, abodah, translates as slavery, servitude. My friends, what took place in Egypt was called out on Sinai. And is it not a curious thing how we move from slavery to slavery? To man, slavery is what? Degradation. We get that. To God, glorification. What is greater? To be the one who is being served or the one who is serving? Ah, yes. To be the one who is serving. What did our Lord say? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. All right, so land becomes a true good if it is a place where God actually reigns, where God actually reigns with man entering into the practice of liturgy and worship. So we are never to let anyone reduce the Exodus event to some political liberation that has no purpose. It is so much more than that. So much more than that. The Exodus and Passover, my friends, is about spiritual freedom and worship. But it is also about redemption. Recall, it was just not all the firstborn sons of Egypt who were going to die. What does God say to the Israelites? If you would like to save your firstborn son, you would have to pay a ransom, the blood of the lamb. God is going to redeem Israel. If you have your Bibles out, go to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. Flip your Bible to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. If you don't have your Bible, just follow along here. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. There it is. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So we will be redeemed with what? The outstretched arms of God. That's interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, what is the great icon of Christianity? But the corpus of Christ, the body of Christ, with arms outstretched, nailed to the wooden beams. So, in order to be saved, you needed to kill an unblemished lamb, spill its blood, and lastly, eat the flesh of the lamb 
with unleavened bread. That was the prescription, more or less, that was given to us in Exodus 12. What's more, the Passover itself was also meant to be a memorial. We read all throughout the Exodus narrative that the Lord commanded Israel to observe the Passover as a memorial. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. We read that you shall keep it a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. Yet, Passover is more than just a mere memorial, more than just a commemoration of a historical event. For the Israelites, my friends, the Passover Seder marked the renewal of a covenant with God. On that day, the day of Passover, the covenant was what but extended into time. And certainly, this memorial would be fulfilled and transformed in the words of Christ when he says, do this in remembrance of me. The word there for memory, as some of you may know, is anamnesis, which best translates as a representation or a re-memorial, or best translated as making present the past, to actualize the past into the present. We should hit the pause button here and reflect a little bit on this topic of memory. What is our memory? We should first say that it is the chief faculty of our soul, the most prolific catalyst of the human spirit, a vast and immeasurable sanctuary, St. Augustine says. Our soul possesses three faculties, the intellect, the will, and the memory, the greatest of these being memory. Without our memory, we would effectively cease to be ourselves as we know it. I mean, if you were to think about it, I could no longer make a phone call to a loved one. I could no longer be able to make a quick run to the store or no longer call a brother on his birthday. In other words, I could no longer be the father, husband, brother, son, uncle, and so on that God has called me to be. Memory is the soul of our relationships. It routes our whole being and interpersonal communion with the larger family of God. Everything we touch smell, see, and act upon is filtered through this immense womb we call the memory. What's more, memory is not reduced just to individuals, but also to human groups. Families, tribes, clans, and nations all have a collective memory. In the end, my friends, human groups don't find their wealth and communal identity in stocks and bonds, but the way in which they remember where they come from. This is why we see at a national level, at least here in the United States, the celebration of such days as Independence Day and Memorial Day. Why? Because remembering the birth of our nation and those who have been lost on the war front is essential to the fabric of any nation, no matter how big or how small. So by celebrating particular events in the past, and certainly this can also include such things as birthdays and anniversaries, we are doing much more than just matting a picture on the wall. We are making present the past to gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of who we are in the present. How many of us have been a part of a recent celebration where there was more than just remembering going on, but storytelling that was life-giving? Within our circles, we have accumulated and inherited all sorts of customs and lore that stir the heart. Quite simply, we do these things because there is purpose and reason behind them, is there not? We are to move beyond the idea 
that memory is just some random psychological exercise where we retrieve data. But in the end, the faculty that tells us who we are, we have traditions because they link us to our ancestors. And in so doing, we carry on this kind of conversation with them. There's a certain dynamism that comes with being able to identify where we come from so as to better understand who we are and where we are going. The mass, the privileged center of Catholic tradition underscores this point, does it not? Because every time we go to mass, we carry on a conversation with our spiritual ancestors so as to better understand who we are and where we are going. But again, the mass is even more than that. Christ's saving death is represented, made present on the altar to intercede on behalf of men in the presence of God the Father. Christ has come as the new Passover, extending himself into our reality that our life has its proper scope and direction. This, of course, is the great miracle of the Eucharist. You know, as this radio program this evening is a more holistic response to a couple of your questions on the Eucharist, there is another question I received that maybe I can speak to more specifically here. How is it, Joe, that the words of a priest can suddenly make Christ present in all those unleavened wafers? Well, outside of the supernatural nature of it, consider. I'm speaking in front of a group of 500 people, and you don't know me. And all of a sudden, I am talking about my oldest son, Colby. Now, before I talked about my oldest son, Colby, before I even mentioned his name, no one knew that Colby was my son in that church. So I spoke, and 500 people now suddenly know of this one truth. When the priest speaks in persona Christi, under the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly those are no longer wafers, but the flesh of Christ. Okay. What more can we say about Passover itself? Well, you have to celebrate Passover at the place where the Lord will choose, right? Where is that place? But the temple, huh? The Holy of Holies. And you not only had to celebrate it in the temple, but you had to be ritually pure. Remember what we have talked about as it relates to that beatitude on purity, blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. The Greek there, katharos, translates this Levitical sense of priestly purity. The Levitical priest would see God if he was pure. Our Lord wants us to see this, that we will see God if we are pure. That beatitude is steeped, steeped in the Levitical uh, ritual, if you will. Consider what John has to say in uh, chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Again, to be pure was to make yourself ready. Now, what do you do when you have arrived in the temple of Jerusalem? If you were an Israelite, you would slaughter the lamb, and the priest would catch the blood and splash the altar. With what but a hyssop branch, right? Interestingly here, the Hebrew word for basin probably better translates as cup. So here you have the image of blood being poured in a cup. How rich is that? We should say something about the history of what I am talking about here because it certainly 
plays an important role. Historically speaking, after David and Solomon reigned, we would read of the tremendous significance of the Passover, the Passover of the generations that I have already spoken to, right? While many of us know there was a long run of corrupt kings, there were two kings in particular that were not corrupt, but righteous. And who were those two kings but King Hezekiah and King Josiah? King Hezekiah becomes king after a long period of corruption and wants to bring reform, reuniting the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he asks himself the question, how will I do this? Well, (laughs) he turns to the Passover, to the celebration of the Passover. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 1 to 3 and verse 8, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it in its time because the priests had not sanctified themselves in sufficient number nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. Verse 8, Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to a sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. So here King Hezekiah is seeking to really reestablish the Passover memorial as the center of his kingdom. So the Passover will be the way in which the 12 tribes are reunited and restored, and we could say restored for a time. We also read in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, King Josiah doing the same kind of thing as that of King Hezekiah, calling for an obedience to the rite of Passover for the sake of unifying and redeeming the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not going to get into all of that now, but it's enough to note that Josiah essentially did what King Hezekiah was doing, reinvigorating the importance of the Passover rite. Brothers and sisters, the Passover was about redemption, ransom, and saving. And so it is that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling by first receiving the blood of the Lamb and certainly doing so as often as possible. And so what about Christ as the new Passover lamb? Well, what's important to note here is how early John introduces us to this motif made reality in Jesus Christ as the lamb of God. What does John say in the opening chapter? John chapter 1, verse 29. There he sees Jesus coming over the hill. And does he say, Behold the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace? No. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By using this title, what is John doing? Is he not drawing our attention to the sacrificial dimension of Christ's mission as the Lamb of God who would be slain at the altar of the cross? The sacrifice that would have all the context of Passover, right? If you have your Bibles out there, I want you to turn to John chapter 19. Maybe just keep your thumb in John chapter 19 as we look at a few more of these verses. 
to once again just really enter all the more deeply into what it means to say Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. First, we can go to verse 5. There we read that Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. This is relevant because purple was the color of vestment that would have been worn by the high priest when offering up the Paschal Lamb. In verse 14, we read that it was the, the day of preparation for the Passover and that it was the sixth hour. The sixth hour was about when? Noon. The time when lambs were being slain in the temple courts for the Passover meal that night. So you have the condemnation and death of Jesus at this time, making the point that indeed he is the true Paschal Lamb whose sacrifice is made in preparation for the Eucharistic meal, the Eucharistic meal of the new covenant. If you were to thumb down to chapter 19, verse 23, there we read of a seamless tunic. The seamless tunic of Christ recalls the linen vestment worn by once again the high priest. And like the narrative speaks to it, it was not to be torn. It was not to be torn. Let us go down to verse 28 and go ahead and just read John chapter 19, verses 28 to 36. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there. So they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Rich, rich verses there. First, we should say something about the hyssop branch, which is a reference to what but Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. The hyssop branch was dipped into the blood of the basin to touch the lintel and the doorposts. As we know, blood on the doorposts led to the Pascha, the passing over. How about this passage, not a bone shall be broken? This was a reference to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. This restriction was part of Israel's Passover legislation that disqualified lambs with blemished and broken bones from being slaughtered and eaten for liturgical celebration. So this was very important. Jesus, whose bones remain intact, is the unblemished lamb fit to be consummated. Remember, the words it is finished literally translate from the Latin consummatum est, it is consummated. Well, what is consummated? But the new marriage covenant that God desires to enter into with all of humanity, with all of humanity. Also, we should note that the Passover lambs, after they were sacrificed in the temple, were nailed into the beams 
of the wood or hung onto hooks in what kind of position but cruciform position. I mean, I wonder if the faithful Jew, upon looking at the whole drama of the Passion, thought about the Passover they celebrated every year and looked upon Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Did they see Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God? I wonder if I would. What about the passage that comes to us from Luke chapter 22, verse 20? This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This phrase, my friends, poured out is cultic language of the Old Testament, where the blood of animal sacrifice was poured at the base of the altar to make atonement for sins. Jesus' blood has been poured out. What did we already talk about? The blood to be poured in a basin? A cup? (laughs) Now, in the words of Dr. Petre, if the Passover prescription was about the kill, spill, and eat your fill, then what is left? Christ has died, his blood has been spilled, and as we have already talked about it, it now must be eaten. What does the Exodus narrative tell us? You must roast the flesh and eat it if you wish to be saved. You know, many of us are familiar with John 6. We have talked about it numerous times. But what was the context? Passover. Let's be clear. The Eucharist is the new Passover. What does Jesus say of the Eucharist? In the Greek, the Eucharisteros, which again best translates as giving thanks, thanksgiving, or that which is full of grace. He says, unless you eat, unless you eat of the flesh and drink of the blood, you have no life. As I often like to point out something else here, up to and through verse 53, the Greek word for eat was estheo, the more common verb for eating. At verse 54, he transitions to trogo, a verb meaning to chew or gnaw. You see, my friends, the change of Greek marks a change of focus for our Lord, a change of emphasis for our Lord, from the necessity of faith to the consumption of the Eucharist. We so often talk about the Paschal mystery. Well, how do we enter into the Paschal mystery? But by entering into the Paschal Lamb. Because by abiding in the Lamb of God, who is Christ, we are abiding in the Paschal mystery. And let us remember, it is never just to be understood in the context of us consuming the Lamb, but the Lamb consuming us. Amen? Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift of being able to reflect into the richness and beauty of your spoken and written word. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.